You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Have you ever had uh, one of those nights where you're up kind of late, so you decide, what's the best thing I should do this morning? Well, I know, I should go pound a white chocolate soy mocha from the newly built Starbucks right by your house, and now you're kind of feeling like you need to throw up a little bit. <laughs> that might be where you're at, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but for those of you that don't know me, my name is Russell Dietrich, and I'm on staff here with Illini Life. And in order to uh, kind of have a starting point for this sermon, we need to go back several years. We need to go back to when I was in high school. Now, to kind of help you get into a, a spot where you can imagine this, imagine me with, without a beard, a little skinnier. Um, I mean, you might imagine me looking a little bit like this. <laughs> I know. Megan's a lucky man. A woman. <laughs> I'm a lucky man. All right. Like I said, that white chocolate mocha. Okay, so... My high school experience was strange on many levels. I, I went to a, um, a selective enrollment public school in Chicago. It was the kind of school that didn't have a football team um, because there was no one who could play football. <laughs> um, and, and for me, my, uh, my freshman year, I didn't have many friends my age. And now I don't want you to like feel bad for me like, oh, Russ didn't have any friends. I had plenty of friends. They were just all older than me. Because what happened was, I, I knew this girl, Sarah, from my church growing up, and she was a junior. And juniors are friends with other juniors. So she kind of invited me into her friend group, right? And um, this girl as well, she was a very persistent inviter. Um, you guys might have experienced this a little bit with a line of life where someone's calling you and inviting you. I had that in person every day in the hallway. When are you going to come to youth group? When are you going to come to youth group? I'll come. So I was like, all right, I'll just go. Sunday nights, I'd go on Sunday mornings too. Because, you know, going to church, that's just something you do as a good Christian. So let's fast forward now to my sophomore year. So I've been in high school for a year. And now all of my friends are seniors, right? And a lot of them are turning 18. And you know what you can do when you're 18? Smoke cigarettes, yeah. Buy lottery tickets, some other things. Um... (laughs) So, yeah, and, and with smoking, there, there's just something about smoking that you need to drink when you smoke, too. And um, that, that was what they were starting to get into, right, was drinking. And uh, it's funny now to think back, like, how much time we would spend scheming. How, how are we going to get alcohol? Because, you know, when you're 18, you don't have that ID. You don't have the privilege. So you're just, like, coming up with all these very creative, inventive, like, world-shifting ways of, of acquiring booze. So that was me, right? I was a sophomore in high school. I had some killer sideburns. Um, I was going to youth group on Sundays. And the other days I was hanging out with my high school friends drinking and occasionally smoking. I I never really understood how to inhale. (laughs) Truly, still to this day, I can't inhale. Don't know. I I swallow. So which leads to you throwing up if you want to know. So, okay. So now one of these friends of mine, he had, grand, he had grandparents, right? Many of us here have grandparents. Um, 
And his grandparents, for whatever reason, decided to ask this 18-year-old, hey, would you house sit for us? And I don't know why anyone in their right mind would ask an 18-year-old who's favorite band was the Smashing Pumpkins to watch their house, but they did. And he, of course, said, absolutely, it'd be my great pleasure and honor. And if you've ever seen an episode of like um, The Fresh Prince or Family Matters or whatever, when a teenager house sits, it leads to a house party usually, right? You guys all know what I'm talking about. I'm sure plenty of you have done this. So we were like, all right, what do we got to do? Let's uh, let's get this house party going. And and don't like don't get any like ideas. This wasn't like a crazy like rager like Project X or anything. It was a pretty modest house party. But still, I was 15. I was at a party. I was drinking, and I had a girlfriend. Right. And this girlfriend and I, we were we were pretty serious. I, I've always been sort of a desperately romantic idealist. So, at the age of 15. Not only did I know that I was madly in love with this woman, but I knew as a 15-year-old man, I was going to marry her one day. It didn't matter that she wasn't a Christian, right? It didn't matter that we were still in high school. It didn't matter that she was planning to go to Greece for a whole summer. Love conquers all. Right? So, hormonal teenager, underage drinking, a desperate romantic. All this led to me locked in a bathroom, madly in love, making out with the girl, taking off clothes, crossing sexual boundaries that we had never crossed in our lives. We didn't have sex because I had morals, right? I went to youth group. So there needed to be some boundaries, but we went pretty far. And it's hard to say how much time had passed until there was someone pounding on the door calling us to come out and kind of doing the whole like nana nana boo boo thing, like trying to embarrass us. So admittedly, when we walked into the kitchen where everyone was hanging out, we were embarrassed. But my embarrassment was about to skyrocket when all my friends sort of just stopped dead, looked at me with their eyes wide open and their mouths slightly agape, and were just pointing at my neck. And yes, the worst thing that can happen to a young Christian man who's trying to hide his sexual promiscuity, I had gotten a hickey. And this wasn't just any old hickey, right? This was a monster hickey. It was huge, literally. And we tried everything that night to make it go away. The the most inventive thing we did, if, if you ever get a hickey, try this. You put a spoon in the freezer, and once it's chilly, you put it on the bruised skin, right? That's what we thought. It made sense. It did not work. I think it made it worse. So eventually, people started to leave. The girlfriends left. Um, other people left. And I, and I just decided to stay the night. And I remember laying on my friend's couch and having this distinct feeling, right? This, this feeling in my stomach. And that feeling that I was feeling is, is what we're here to talk about today. This feeling is shame. I felt ashamed. I I knew what was right as a young Christian, and I made choice after choice after choice after choice that led me to a spot where I was drinking underage, where I was being sexually immoral at the ripe age of 15. I knew at all costs I needed to hide, right? And I especially needed to hide my hickey from judgmental eyes, but I also needed to hide my sin 
from anyone that wouldn't condone it. So I don't want to assume here that all of you have had this exact same experience. I hope not, right? But I am guessing that many of you have had a moment or several moments or maybe hundreds of moments where you felt shame. Maybe you had a moment this morning before you came to church today where you felt shame. And shame is what we're exploring, right? And not just shame, but shame's consequences. The actions that stem out from the root of shame. And the reason we're doing this is because we're in the middle of a series called Imago Day, Recovering Our True Humanity. And this is a four-week series whose premise is this. It's that all of us here are image bearers of God. Imago Day means to be an image bearer. And it is our hope that on some level through these talks, we will be able to teach you guys to reach a deeper level of humanity. Last week, Brooke introduced us to this idea of Imago Day, And she taught us that as followers of Jesus, we see the image of God in everyone, no matter how they, they look, no matter their gender, no matter their economic level. The, the homeless man on Green Street and the Wall Street banker down in New York, they're all image bearers of God. And because of that, we give people respect and dignity, even our worst of enemies. And she also taught us that God is building a diverse church, a church of all genders, all ethnicities, and all income levels. And as the body of Christ, we need to fight for diversity, right? By having hard conversations, by asking awkward questions, and by choosing to be with people that look, think, and act differently than us. And Brooke's sermon, it, it brought us to the Garden of Eden, right? Where God, our creator, was forming humanity from the dust and breathing life into them. God declared, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. And God's creation of these image bearers was what? What did God say it was? Annie, you know what he said. <laughs> Come on, Anybody? It was good. It was very good. Man, Annie froze there. Sorry. (laughs) Next time. I'll give you another one. All right. So our image bearers were very good, right? God created man and he created woman. And and as they lived and worked in the garden, the Bible tells us that they were both naked and and, and not ashamed. Now, I want you to think, when was the last time that you were naked and felt unashamed. And, and more specifically, when was the last time you were like naked in front of a couple people and were just like, <laughs> this feels right. <laughs> if you were like me, it might probably be back before you can remember when you were three and it's bath time and, and you're, you're unleashed from the constraints of clothes. And what do you do? And you're beelining down the hallway running to the God knows what, but you're just running because you're naked and you're free. <laughs> so, um, nakedness, right? My, now, it's awkward. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, now, those of you in the audience that are single, right, that aren't married yet, you might be thinking, well, well, Russ, like, you're married, right? So isn't it, like, awesome to be naked now? Um, and it, the answer is kind of, right? Um, it's awesome for my wife to be naked, but for me to be naked? No. 
There's like body hair, there's acne, there's bad angles, there's fatness. And it's disempowering, right? My clothes are my shield. Whenever like, I don't know about you guys, but like, whenever like I was getting in trouble when I was a kid, like if I wasn't wearing a shirt, like I had to go and put a shirt on. Like if my mom was like scolding me, there's just something about like my clothes are my armor, you know? So maybe I'm crazy, right? But for, for most humans, excluding the nudists, being naked in front of someone is embarrassing. And even being naked in front of your spouse can be embarrassing, truly. The simple fact that all of you in this room are wearing clothes proves the point. We are not a naked and unashamed people. So I want to ask, what happened? What happened to Adam and Eve? What happened to us, right? To answer this, we need to go back to the garden. And we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And I just want you guys to take into account how fast this all goes down the drain, right? Genesis 2.25 is the last verse in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2. And it's the verse that says they were naked and felt no shame. And, it, and it's only about seven verses later that we'll find Adam and Eve, Eve both aware of their nakedness and, and beginning to cover themselves up with fig leaves. So let's read now together. I'll have it on the screen behind me if you guys want to follow along. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Eve, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, Now we think of him having like a smooth voice here, like, You will not surely die. You know what I mean? You know that guy? Yeah, that guy. Cigarettes are cool, man. Just try it, you know? So for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Adam was there the whole time. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. There it is. Shame. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He being God said, who commanded you not to, who, who, wait, sorry. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? This is a classic man's answer. <laughs> the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. You know? Not my, my, my fault. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman's like, Whoa! 
serpent, man. That serpent deceived me and I ate. Classic, right? Classic. So do you guys see it? Do you see what happens? This is where shame comes from, right? It comes from sin. Like an apple from a tree, one of the primary fruits that is born from the stump of sin is shame. And using Genesis 3 as our guide, we can see a pattern of division that is established by Adam and Eve. But even even though this pattern is like thousands and thousands and thousands of years old, it's a pattern that's still very relevant and happening today in our very daily lives, right? And within this pattern of division, we see three different parties that we are divided from. We see three divisions of shame. So what happens first, right? Adam and Eve are tempted. They're tempted by the serpent, who we later come out, who we later come to find is an adversary of God. It's, it's the devil himself. And this serpent is diametrically opposed to God and his creation and the Lord and his people finding joy in one another. And this temptation is what leads to the sinful actions of humanity. Verse 1, the serpent told Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The simple answer would be, yes, he did. Now go away. But that's not what she said, right? And, And as I was reflecting on this verse, I think we could argue that the moment sin entered the world wasn't a moment, right? It was several moments. It was a gradual decline. And I think that's true for us, right? We don't just like, you know, start sinning right away. It's usually a gradual decline, a decision after decision after decision. I didn't just like instantly show up at a party drinking in high school. I I had to make a lot of decisions before I got there. So sin, like the serpent, crawled into existence. Eve doesn't debate the serpent, right? She kind of entertains his idea. And this is what it says she does. When she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, she ate of it, right? And not only did she eat of it, but her husband Adam ate of it. Before the fruit even touches their lips, an internal decision had been made. And a fracture occurred within the self, a division of the self. We doubt God. We doubt that he has good in mind for us. And ultimately, when we are sinning, we're, we're believing that God's withholding something from us, right? For me at that party in high school, the thing that God was withholding from me was safety and security. My parents had gotten divorced several years earlier. And by my sophomore year of high school, it had been four years since I talked to my dad. My absent father led me to believe that God was withholding acceptance and protection and security. So what did I do? I went and found that for myself. I found it in friends that were older than me that I could take refuge in. And I found acceptance in the love of a young woman. I found acceptance in high school romance. I didn't need God to provide a family for me because I was making my own family at my high school. Brothers and sisters and a spouse, right? And you do this too. God is withholding something from you. And what is it? I I want you guys to think, what is it that I believe God is withholding from me? Is it success? Is it money? Is it a spouse? Is Is it a job? Is it power? Is it knowledge? Is it sexual pleasure? Is it loving parents? 
Or maybe he's withholding parents that aren't so loving, parents that aren't constantly controlling you and tracking you on your iPhone and calling you every other day to make sure that you're still alive. And and what's the biggest accusation of God today? He's a withholder, right? He wants to withhold us from feeling good. He's anti-sex. He's anti-expression. He's anti-freedom. And I hope you'll catch what happened there. It happened really quickly. The division from the self happens pretty much simultaneously as our second division. Shame divides us from God. Shame divides us from our creator. Once we begin to realize the decisions of, of our, the, the ramifications of our sin, once we realize that eating the fruit was wrong, or that sleeping with our girlfriend was wrong, or that getting drunk was wrong, or that cheating on that test was wrong, or that masturbating to pornography was wrong, or that I lied to my mom and my dad and that was wrong, and our, I gossiped about one of my best friends and that was wrong, or I cheated on my taxes, or I yelled at my kids in anger, in rage. Whatever forbidden fruit we like to eat, we all have these very deep, in very clear moments where we feel shame. And unfortunately, for many of us, we have chosen to follow the example of our first parents, and we conceal ourselves. We put on fig leaves. We run into the forest and hide. And the most popular way to hide from God in current culture is to say that God doesn't exist. If there is no God, there's no one to hide from. There's no one telling me what to do. There's no one enforcing these arbitrary, puritanical rules on my life. To many, religion is the opiate of a quickly shrinking minority of people. And we don't need God anymore. We don't need his moral constraint. We don't need him to be a presence in this world. And that is what a lot of your friends And a lot of your colleagues on this campus are choosing to believe. Their shame has led them to choose and to decide that God is not real. Well, that's not us, right? This is a room filled mostly with believers, mostly with Christians. But still, even though we're all believers, we're all still wearing clothes, right? We're all still ashamed. We're all still struggling with sin. And I would say that Christians, probably more than anyone, we're the most culpable of hiding because we feel this need to put on a good face. And I think the way that most of you guys hide is by smiling. Wait, what? We hide by smiling? Yeah. Let me explain. Here, uh, who wants to stand up? How about you? What's your name? Yeah. Katie, good morning. How are you doing? Wait, 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 don't clap. No, we're doing like a little performance. Okay. Katie, good morning. How you doing? Good. Oh, great, great. Good to see you. Hey, John, how you doing? Oh, oh good. How, how's everything? Oh, we'll talk later. Hey, okay. how you doing? Yeah. <laughs> good. What's your name? Oh, good. Hi. All right. You can sit down. Let's give it up. That's it, right? That's how we hide. Hey, hi. How you doing? I'm great. How are you? Oh, I'm great too. What are the odds? Now, 
I, I, I don't know. I feel like I tell this story about Alan a lot, but one of the like most impactful things Alan ever did to me in my life was one, one day I, I was doing that to him. I was going, hey, Alan, how you doing? And he went, you know, actually, I'm not doing that good. And I was like, oh, that's awkward. I wasn't, I'm not like ready for all that. But like, man, it really impacted me. Because Alan was choosing to be real in that moment. And I, I, I think what happens is that, oh no, I lost my place. Good God. Wait, was that taking the Lord's name in vain? Where'd it go? Oh, well, let's pick up right here. We're hiding, okay? And that's exactly what I did, right? I hid, right? After that party, it was on a Friday night. And what day comes after uh, Friday? And then what comes after Saturday? Sunday. Sunday. And then what was on Sunday, if you remember? Church! Oh, no! I have to go to church with a hickey. What am I going to do? Crap. So, I mean, I was able to hide it from my mom because I was like, wore scarves and... uh, (laughs) I like, you know, just kind of avoided crossing paths with her. So it, it, it worked out in that regard. But at youth group, we play dodgeball. You can't wear a scarf during dodgeball. <laughs> it gets really hot and sweaty, and you just want to be free, you know? So I decided, well, I'll just lie. So I told, I told everybody I'd gotten hit in the neck with a hockey puck. <laughs> Which you might be thinking, well, Russ, you don't play hockey. Actually, I did. I used to play floor hockey, which is like hockey with shoes. Um, it's a very advanced form of hockey. And we had these little plastic pucks, and very well a puck could, you know, jack you in the neck. And it did. It hit me in the neck. That's what I told everybody. And, you know, I tried my best at lying. I tried my best at concealing with my scarves. And um, People saw right through it, right? My youth group leader, Daniel who I'm, I'm still grateful for to this day, he pulled me aside and he lovingly confronted me about it and just asked me what was going on. And I don't remember much of that conversation, but I do remember how negatively I reacted, right? I decided, well, this isn't working. I, I, need, I need to do something different. And the thing, you know, you might be thinking, oh, well, he decided to like, pursue purity, right? No. I was like, I got to come up with a better fig leaf system. Because people are beginning to, like, see in through some of the holes. So I got to go, like, double down on the leaves and maybe add some goose feathers and get this this covering a little bit, you know, less vulnerable. So now, if you skip ahead to verse 11, back in the Garden of Eden, we're going to find that last way that we are divided, right? We're divided from each other. So what did I say Adam did when God confronted him? Who did he throw under the bus? His poor wife, right? I've, you know, I've done that, I'm sure, in some way. And then what does Eve do? She throws the serpent under the bus. And that's what happens when we sin and when shame gets into our lives. It divides us from each other, right? Shame leads to division within your friendships and within your relationships. Now, with my story that I've been weaving in and out of this sermon, I never had a moment where I directly threw my girlfriend under the bus in in public. 
But I think in my walk with God, I use this young lady as an excuse. I would tell myself, I can't break up with her because I know how much pain it will cause her. Even though I know it's not God-honoring to be pursuing things with a non-believer, especially pursuing a relationship that is sexually active, I can't bear the thought of breaking her heart. And this was the excuse I used with God, right? Lord, I cannot fully follow you because of her. I'm doing a good thing. I have to stay in this sinful relationship. And better yet, Lord, how about I just lead her to Christ? Do a little evangelating. You'll get two believers for the price of one, Lord. That's, that's a deal. Yeah, not a fan. Me neither. <laughs> uh, needless to say, shame wreaks havoc in our lives, and it was wreaking havoc in my life. For me, it led... The shame led me to stay in this unhealthy relationship for over three years. And then, by the grace of God, she finally dumped me right after we saw the movie Ice Princess, which felt particularly cruel to me because it was such a, like, sweet movie. And I was like, oh, man, Ice Princess was great. And I was dumped. It was horrible. You guys don't know what Ice Princess is, I'm guessing. You do? Oh, good. I've never watched it since. <laughs> All right, so she dumped me after Ice Princess, and her main reason was, like, she was moving to New York for college, and and she really had no interest in in becoming a Christian, right? Three years I lived in sin. In three years, I very intimately presented to her one of the worst testimonies of what it looks like to be a Christian, I think, of all time. Probably not of all time, but it was pretty bad, right? And you, you think, okay, Russ, he got dumped, and... Praise the Lord, he changed his ways. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I decided, you know what would be better than staying single? I should get into another one of these relationships. So literally, three years, I'm single for a month. A month later, I start dating yet another non-Christian girl. And that relationship ends up going on for four years. And we could talk about that one at another time. <laughs> so think about your situation, right? What's your secret shame? What's the thing that you want to keep hidden behind fig leaves? What's the hickey in your life that you're trying to cover up with a scarf? We all have this, right? And my question here is, is there any hope? Is there any freedom? Is there any relief from this cycle of sin and shame? If we look back to the Garden of Eden, we see that before Adam and Eve had a chance to turn against each other, they did something very interesting, right? They went into hiding. They covered themselves with camouflage, and they hid in the forest when they heard God coming. And listen to how God came to them. He he came to them in, in the cool of the day. It was a very peaceful approach, and yet they were terrified. But what does the Lord God say to them? Where are you? And it's not that God didn't know where they were. It was like, you know, two little kids playing hide and seek and their feet are showing beneath the curtain, you know, like God knew where they were. But God is calling his image bearers out of hiding. 
God is seeking you as you're concealing yourself in the forest of shame. And the most tangible way that God has sought you out is through his son, Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and let us lay aside every sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to who? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Our Lord Jesus despises shame. And he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The answer to shame, my friends, is Jesus. And who is this Jesus, right? Colossians 1 uses very familiar language. It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile himself to all things. In his book, The Pursuing God, Joshua Butler says, Jesus is true humanity. Earlier in the book of Hebrews, we're told that Jesus was tempted, right? He was tempted just like you and I, but he was without sin. Jesus' answer to shame was to live a life free from it because he lived a life free from sin. And again, referring to Butler's book, The Pursuing God, Jesus could have sinned. The opportunity was presented to him on the outside. And I love this line. But Jesus would not have sinned because of who he was on the inside. The security of salvation is bound up in who Jesus is. By not sinning, Jesus is more human than we are. Isn't that the excuse we like to give, though, when we're caught up in these traps of of sin? I'm only human, bro. I'm only human. I'd say the opposite, though. I would say sinning is inhumane. It's the opposite of being human. And it's only through the power and the work of Jesus that we can recover our true humanity and start living lives free of sin and free of shame. To close, and never trust the man up front when he says he's about to close. But to close, I really do want to close. We're going to zoom in on Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, right? Specifically the verse that says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising his shame. Now, I actually prefer the NIV's interpretation of the word uh, kataphroneo, which ESV translates as despised. It says Jesus scorned its shame. I love that word, scorn. Isn't that a cool word? Scorn. Say scorn. Sounds like, uh, it makes me think of bugles. I don't know why. Do you guys know what bugles are? They're like those little cone dunce caps. It's like, I'm going to scorn those snacks. I don't know. I got a weird mind. Um, But yeah, scorn. It sounds like a cool heavy metal band. And and that's what we're going to learn to do, right? We're going to learn to be like Jesus and scorn shame. Now, fortunately for us, we do not have to scorn the shame of the cross. And I think something that gets lost on us as we think about the cross is we like to focus on the physical pain that Jesus felt, the nails, the whips digging into his back. There's a whole movie about it called The Passion of the Christ. But I think we forget how humiliating being crucified would have been. Not only was Jesus stripped down to his, you know, barely any clothing at all, 
He was mocked. They jammed a crown of thorn on his head, on his head and, and said, you're not who you said you are. He was paraded down a whole road of people jeering at him and spitting on him and mocking him. And I think we forget the embarrassment of the cross. It would have been humiliating. And it would have, I think for anybody but him, would have led to deep, deep shame. But Jesus scorns the shame of the cross because of the joy set before him. Because of you. You were the joy set before our Lord that compelled him to scorn shame because he wanted to die for you. He wanted to rise again for you three days later. He wanted to save you. So we're going to do this, right? We're going to follow the example of King Jesus and we're going to scorn shame. And to scorn shame, it's basically to scorn is the feeling or belief that someone or something is worthless or despicable, right? So I've summed up shame in a, a mouth noise. It's uh, you know, I'm scorning you guys. Does that make sense? You've been scorned. You don't agree. All right. So yeah, that's how I'm understanding scorn. But I don't feel like that's really like the most salient way to understand it. So I found this really great example of, of Jesus scorning shame. And it's by a, a pastor in Minnesota named John Piper. And he just, he, he kind of created this poetic little um, section of prose about Jesus scorning shame. So he, he's writing from the perspective of Christ right now. When Jesus scorns shame, it means that Jesus spoke to shame like this. And just close your eyes and listen to me, okay? Listen to me, shame. Do you see that joy in front of me? Compared to that, you are less than nothing. Shame, you are not worth comparing to that. I despise you. You think you have power, shame? Compared to the joy before me, you have none. Joy, that is my power. Not you, shame. Oh, gosh. You think you can distract me? Oh, that's so funny. Whoa, weird. Okay. You think you can distract me, shame? iPhone, shaming iPhone. I won't even look at you. I have a joy set before me. Why would I look at you? You are ugly and despicable, and you are almost finished. You cover me now as with a shroud. Before you can say, so there, I will throw you off like a filthy rag, shame. I will put on my royal robe. You think you are great because even last night you made my disciples run away. You are a fool, shame. You are a despicable fool. That abandonment, that loneliness, this cross, these tools of yours, they are all my sacred suffering and they will save my disciples, not destroy them. Shame, you are a fool and your filthy hands fulfill holy prophecy. So knowing that we have a beautiful example of true humanity in Jesus, we, we can see that this God-man scorns shame, even the shame of the cross. And because of him, we can now do that same thing in our lives. So the three ways that we scorn, scorn shame. First, we allow ourselves to be found, right? As I said earlier, the image bearers of King Jesus are being called out of hiding. Similar to Adam and Eve, God is calling you out of the shadows, 
of the garden's trees. And the question is, are you going to respond? Are you going to choose to be vulnerable? Are you going to step to the Lord and say, I was afraid and I hid myself? Taking the step towards God is the first way that we walk away from shame. And there's nothing more scornful than walking away from something. You need to drop the mic on shame. Secondly, and probably most, I think, difficult, is we need to allow ourselves to be guilty. This next step may be uncomfortable, but I think it is the most important step in scorning shame. We, we have to allow ourselves to be guilty. We have to call a spade a spade. When we sin, we don't justify it, we don't make excuses, and we don't try to pretty it up. In the Garden of Eden, God didn't turn a blind eye from Adam and Eve's sin. Genesis three fifteen through 19, which I recommend you read, is God explaining the consequence of Adam and Eve's sin. God doesn't brush your sin under a rug. He acknowledges it. And he justly disciplines for us. And thankfully, he gives you a way out, right? We have to acknowledge our guilt because Jesus can't save you if you don't need to be saved. Jesus can't cleanse you if you're not dirty. And Jesus can't redeem you if you're not trapped in slavery. So we allow ourselves to be found. We allow ourselves to be guilty. And lastly, and most importantly, we allow ourselves to be saved. It's such, a amazing, it's such an amazing reality that our God is a pursuing God. He pursued Adam and Eve as they were hiding in the garden. And you guys need to believe this. He is pursuing you actively today. The living God is pursuing you and he is calling you out of hiding. He is pursuing you through his son, Jesus, this man who has recovered humanity for us and is presenting it to us as a gift. And it's through the salvation in Jesus that we can live a life free from sin, a life free from shame. So beloved, let us with confidence draw near to Jesus so that we, went, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us draw near to Jesus so that we can be truly human. Would you guys pray with me?